0: take your Bibles out. I hope you already had them out, turned into Psalms, and now turn over to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. We'll be considering verses 12 through 19 this morning in a sermon I've entitled, Behold Your King. Behold Your King. You've probably heard the saying before, everybody loves a parade. Go and bring that forth there for me, Eli. This is not working. There it is. Okay, it's working. I got a clicker just in case. Boom, boom, there it is. Everybody loves a parade, right? You've heard that before. We, we are, as in a society, have parades on a pretty regular basis, and parades will be ubiquitous among all cultures and in all countries because everyone loves a parade. Sometimes we experience parades whenever there's a great athletic accomplishment, like when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won the Super Bowl a couple years ago. Or when the World Series champs, the Atlanta Braves, came back from their victory. Everyone loves a parade. We also see parades whenever they are highlighting particular social issues, like the March for Life for those who are unborn that are being threatened. There are parades for uh, holidays, like our own Lookout Valley Christmas parade that we have Every year, there are motorcycle parades and there are boat parades. There are parades with floats made from flowers and parades with flower boys that float. (laughs) There are all kinds of parades out there because everyone loves a parade. And of course, there are parades that celebrate military victories and the cessation of war and conflict, like the New York City ticker tape parade at the conclusion of World War II. I did some research on parades this week, as you might guess, and I found out that the longest parade is actually in Hanover, Germany, at this event called the Schutzenfest. And you might guess by the name Schutzenfest that it is a shooting festival. It is a marksman's party. It is a marksman's parade. And so at this Schutzenfest, which has been going on since 1529 in Germany, there are some 10,000 marksmen from all over the world who gather there in Hanover, Germany for this shooting marksman contest. And before the event begins, they have a parade. And all of the different marksmen and all of their regiments, they line up along with marching bands, dancers, costume characters, and they march, they parade into town. And the total length of this parade, seven and a half miles long. It is the longest parade in the world. Where does this term or this understanding of the word parade come from? It's actually a French word. Thank you. The French gave us something, I guess. It's a French word. And the word parade in French means this, a show of bravado, an orderly assembly of troops for inspections. So this is what the word parade originally meant. You paraded before uh, the people or before a king, the military. And you've seen this before. You've seen soldiers lined up and they're filing forward in great precision to show their discipline, to show their commitment. In recent years, you've probably seen parades in some totalitarian states like the Soviet Union or China or North Korea, where they have these parades with their military arsenals. They're showing their big tanks and their missiles just to show forth to their people, but really to the world. You don't want to mess with us. This is a parade, and this is where the word parade comes from. A parade originally comes from a military victor, a conqueror coming back into his kingdom, leading his captives behind him as he comes in to the cheers of the people as he has now experienced victory against their foes. And this is something of what we see happening here in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, we have the record of Jesus' what's called his triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he's riding on the foal of a donkey to the cheers of the crowd, Hosanna to the Son of David. This is one of the only events in Jesus' life that is recorded in all four gospel accounts, which tells us of its importance the gospel story itself. We're going to be looking at John's account and also paying attention some to the other gospel accounts as well. But look in your Bibles. In John chapter 12, we're going to begin reading in verse 12, this is the inspired word of God. The Bible says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now we saw in the previous passage a chronological marker that John had given us in verse one. He told us it was six days from Passover. And now, here in this section, he tells us on the next day, which is five days from Passover. We know historically this is Palm, what? Sunday. This is Sunday of Holy Week. Good Friday is just five days away. So this is the beginning of Holy Week, and it's marked by this triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. This day that John is writing about in Jerusalem is the time when Passover would be celebrated there on the Holy Temple Mount in Jerusalem with all of the Levitical priesthood involved in the massive undertaking of celebrating Passover. There were three pilgrimage feasts that the Jews were expected to pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate. One was this one, Passover, another one is the Feast of Tabernacles, and the other one is the Feast of Pentecost. So these three festivals would be the annual pilgrimage feasts. Now, Tabernacles was probably the most popular among the people because, as I mentioned before, when we were in that season of Tabernacle Festival uh, in John, it was something like a family camping trip. It was the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents, where you took and you put together a tent there in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem, and you camped out there for the week as you celebrated that feast. So it was a very celebratory feast. On the other hand, this Feast of Passover had a different tone. It was more ominous. It was more um, solemn as it remembered the difficult period of time that the Hebrews suffered under the Egyptian captivity and bondage and also the exodus that they experienced at the right hand of God through Moses, his deliverer. And ultimately, the deliverance they experienced through the blood of the lamb being over their doorposts as the angel of death passed over and they were delivered from God's wrath. This is Passover. Now, Jesus' entry into Passover, into Jerusalem on Passover week, is really one of the most dramatic events of Jesus's entire ministry, which is why again I think it's recorded in all four gospels. And here's why it's dramatic. Because Jesus departs from his normal method of operations. Uh, mostly when we see Jesus in the gospels, he is deflecting fame. He is trying to tone down expectations. When he heals somebody, what does he say? Don't tell anybody. Don't say anything. In fact, the very last of the 7 Sign miracles that John records, the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. What does Jesus do immediately after the miracle? He leaves town. He bolts out of town 12 miles away to Ephraim. He's always deflecting attention and he's not wanting to instigate the rage of the Pharisees any more than they're being instigated. This all changes here. His whole method of operation changes where he's not deflecting attention, he's drawing attention. He's not trying to uh, ease the tensions of the Jewish religious leaders. He's goading the religious leaders into accomplishing what their evil intent is already, to kill him. Why? Because Jesus's life would not be taken from him. He would give it willingly. Nobody's gonna take Jesus's life before his appointed timetable. He is controlling the divine chronology of his life, and also of his death. And here, he makes an unmistakable entry into Jerusalem. All the eyes of the people who had come to this pilgrimage festival were on Jesus. All the lips were saying the name Jesus. Do you think Jesus is gonna show up? Do you think he's gonna make an appearance? Do you think he's coming to the temple? As we consider this, this triumphal entry, as it were, of Jesus into Jerusalem. There's really four things from the passage I want to point out that let us get some understanding about this event. The first one is this. I want us to think about the actual parade, the procession of the king. The procession of the king. Again, verse 12 says, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. If you're going to truly picture what's happening here, I want you to try to imagine in your mind's eye the massive nature of this crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem. Uh, John says it's a large crowd, Poly in the Greek. Many, 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 many people uh, are there in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Now, history tells us that during the time of Jesus, the normal population of the city of Jerusalem was around 50,000 people, 50,000 people. But in one of these pilgrim, pilgrimage festivals, that population exploded as all these pilgrims would come into the city. One such historian is Josephus, and he has written a book called The Antiquities of the Jews. And he gives an account uh, from 65 BC of when the high priest was instructed to count the number of lambs, so some 40 years after Jesus, the number of lambs that would be sacrificed in the temple during Passover week. Look at what Josephus writes. He says, Cestius, the Roman governor of Palestine, attempted to impress Emperor Nero that the Passover was an important feast for the Jews. And to do this, he ordered the high priest to count the actual number of lambs that were sacrificed at Passover in the year AUC 818, which would be AD 65. Cestius quoted the high priest as giving him a figure of 256,500,000, lambs, or 256,500 lambs that were offered for sacrifice. That's amazing. <laughs> I've sacrificed some animals, not for worship, but to eat. There's a lot of blood that's spilled when you kill an animal. Any hunters with me on that? 256,000 animals slaughtered? Now, let's say the high priest greatly inflated the number of animals that were sacrificed. So to impress emperor Nero. Let's say a conservative estimate is over that uh, period of Passover, they only slaughtered 100,000 lambs, still a lot of lambs. An average family group for the Hebrew people would be about 10 people per family. That's how many would consume and eat this lamb at the Passover meal, the Seder meal. So 10 people per family, 100,000 lambs, what is that math majors? A million, good math, good math. 10 times 100,000 is a million. A million people show up to Jerusalem during Passover. That's a conservative estimate. Those streets are bursting with people. It is wall to wall, shoulder to shoulder, people. Kind of like whenever the interstate shuts down and everybody gets off one of our two exits to come here to Lookout Valley, right? That's Passover week. Where are you people coming from, right? We who are homebodies. Listen, this is what's happening here. Just... Hundreds of thousands of people, over a million people, swell the city of Jerusalem, and they are bursting with activity. And further, the name of Jesus is on all their lips. Why? Well, for one, the word had gone out. The arrest warrant had been made. If anybody knows where Jesus is, let us know, because we're going to take him out. So there was an arrest warrant for Jesus that had already been publicly proclaimed, Secondly, news of Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, that was also spreading like wildfire. And so these people are curious about Jesus because they've heard of this incredible resurrection of Jesus. So picture it. There's this large crowd and here's Jesus coming in from Bethany. The crowd that was with him whenever he resurrected Lazarus from the dead, they're coming with him from Bethany, that two-mile journey. Then the people in Jerusalem, a million strong, hear, hey, Jesus is coming. We were wondering if he's gonna show. He's coming. They all leave the city complex to meet him on the road, and together they enter Jerusalem. This is a magnificent, incredible parade, a procession of the king. Here's the second thing I want you to notice, the pronouncement for the king, the pronouncement for the king. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us they went out and cut branches for this parade, but John alone tells us what kind of branches they were. They were palm branches, which is where we get the name Palm Sunday. Now, what's the significance of palm branches? What's the significance of palm trees? Well, you can picture it. They're taking their cloaks. They're laying them on the ground. Jesus is walking over their cloaks. Then they're taking palm branches, and not only are they laying them on the ground in a sign of subservience, but they're also waving these palm branches. And while they're doing that, they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. What is the significance of the palm trees? Well, the answer is this. The palm tree and the palm branch had become something of a symbol of Israel's nationalistic pride. it became become the emblem. If you are a Tennessee Vol fan, you see that T, it's a sense of pride, right? You see, if you're a Florida gator, you see that gator, it's a sense of Pride, though not recently, right, unfortunately. You see these things and there is a sense of pride. You see the American flag. You want to salute. You want to put your hand over your heart. There's a sense of pride. The palm branch, the palm tree, had become such an emblem for the Jewish people. We see this in a couple of ways. For one, 150 years before Jesus, uh, I had told you before in a previous message that the, that the temple in Jerusalem had become desecrated by the Greeks who had come in and they sacrificed a pig of all things, on the altar where uh, lambs would be slaughtered. Well, one liberator, one revolutionary by the name of Judas Maccabeus actually came in and expelled the Greeks and he came into Jerusalem. Here's a picture of him. He's riding on a stallion, on a steed. And guess what they're doing when he comes into town? This is 150 years before Jesus. They're waving palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna, (laughs) Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. Again, Hosanna, our English word Hosanna, is a transliteration of the Greek word, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew word, which means save us now. So when we were just singing Hosanna to God in the highest, we're saying save us now. And this is what the people were saying to Judas Maccabeus as a revolutionary who threw out the Greeks. And this is what they were saying to Jesus. Further, a generation after Jesus, there was in fact a revolt against Rome. You may remember it ended up in the temple being destroyed in AD 70. But during that period of revolution, the Jews began to stamp their own coins, their own money. And I want you to look at one of the coins. This is a half shekel from that period. What is on the coin of Israel? A palm tree. This was their emblem of nationalistic pride hosanna was their fight war chant hosanna hosanna rocky top right this is their war chant they're saying let's go let's get him, let's win and that's what they're saying to jesus this idea is reinforced in these loud cries and this comes from really a messianic psalm psalm 118 look at psalm 118 verse 25 it's translated in our bibles it's hosanna in the hebrew but it's translated save us we pray. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So frequently, the Hebrew people would pronounce these words in this fight song of the Jewish people, Hosanna. It was the fight song of the, particularly the independence party of the Jewish people. And we know this was the spirit they had because they actually added to this song. Did you notice it in the passage? They added to this scripture, even the king of Israel. Psalm 118 doesn't say that, but they added that to their shouts of Hosanna because that was their mindset. Here comes the conqueror. He's going to oust our enemies and he's going to rule as the king and we're going to be restored in a kingdom. But this is not the kind of king Jesus came to be. He didn't come in some display of military prowess. How did he come? Look at this third thing on your outline. Number three, I want you to consider the peace of the king. The peace of the king. Verse 15, John quotes from Zechariah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What in the world? Here comes Judas Maccabeus 150 years earlier on the mighty steed, a war horse dressed for battle. Here comes King Jesus on not even a mature donkey, a donkey's colt. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, excuse me, Luke, tell us that Jesus instructed two of his disciples to go and get the donkey. He had already prepared it. They went there, they grabbed the donkey. If the owner says, "What do you need this? The Lord has need of it. These are not the droids you're looking for. No, they, the Lord needs it. Bring the donkey here. In fact, Matthew tells us that they actually got the mama donkey. If you know anything about animals, if you want to lead a baby, what do you do? You lead the mama. So they went and got the mama donkey, and the colt is following mama back to Jesus. And here they are. They bring this donkey to the Lord. It's likely that Jesus didn't ride this colt, this foal of a donkey, the entire two-mile trip, he probably walked. And they're leading this donkey to him and with him until finally they get to the gate of the city, and Jesus gets on top of this little donkey and rides the colt of the donkey through the gate of Jerusalem into the city. Incredible. Uh, Luke also gives us the state of mind that Jesus has in this moment. We might think, okay, They're shouting, the Son of David, the King of Israel. They're finally affirming who Jesus is. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Did Jesus respond with, bring it on, y'all. This is exactly what you should have been doing all along. Is that what he says? Not at all. Notice how Luke records his mindset in verses 41 and 42. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This was a parade of both cheers and tears. Think of it. Among the cheers of the crowd, as they're shouting, Hosanna, he's our king, Jesus is sobbing. He's wailing. The Greek word used there that Luke uses is "cleo," which is an onomatopoetic word, which just means it means what it sounds like, kind of like buzz and crash. They mean what they sound like. Cleo, Cleo, Jesus is letting out bursts of grief. At the exact same time, they are saying, you're our king. Why? Because he knew. They just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. He says, would that you knew the things that make for peace. And John reminds us that Jesus' entry on a donkey perfectly fulfills the prophetic prediction of one Zechariah hundreds of years earlier in the Old Testament. You can likely see in your Bibles that there's a cross-reference there to Zechariah 9:9. Now, when the New Testament writers Refer to an Old Testament passage. You have to remember there were no verse divisions in their day. That didn't come until about the 1500s. So when they refer to an Old Testament prophecy, they're referring to the whole Old Testament prophecy. They're referring to the context in which that line comes from. They didn't just cherry pick lines here and there. So I want you to see kind of the fuller context of Zachariah's prophecy regarding the king coming in on the foal of a donkey. Look look at. Uh, Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9, we'll also read verse 10. The Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So it's against this backdrop of this very well-known prophecy for the Old Testament people that we see how strongly Jesus is issuing here a straightforward rebuke of their expectations. They wanted Messiah to be this militaristic figure who is gonna come out and lead them in revolution and Revolt, revolt! They're seemingly completely unaware of the way Messiah was to come. They were looking for a warrior. Jesus is coming as the Prince of Peace mounted on a young donkey. And friends, what a warning this is to us. What a warning this is to us as Christians and as the church that our spiritual agenda is In the world, as God has ordained, is not through military power. It's not through a show of strength. Rather, it's one of peace. We hear a lot today about the culture war and culture warriors. And I'm as thankful as anybody for elected officials, for governing officials, who represent truth, who legislate from a biblical worldview, I am thankful for them. But we must always remember that the culture war in which we are engaged is ultimately spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. Think about the abortion issue that has been on the forefront of the culture war, if you will, for the last 50 years. For 50 years, it it waged after the Roe versus Wade decision, which is recently overturned, but I want you to think about that 50 years ago, when it, was over, when it was, became the law of the land, there was no such thing as 3D ultrasound machines where parents could see 3D images of their unborn children. That didn't exist. They had no idea about it. I want you to think that 50 years ago, DNA was not a, a thing in the scientific world, that right now at the moment of conception when that egg is fertilized the unique unmistakable dna code of that child is imprinted on his life and that unique one-of-a-kind dna code determines gender hair color eye color and even things like how big your nose is going to be and male pattern baldness that's all determined by your dna code that is unique to you alone Fifty years ago, it would be very easy to convince a panel of Supreme Court justices that thing in the womb is just a clump of cells because they didn't have the science. Surely no one today would refer to an unborn child as a clump of cells. But do they? Do they? Why? Because it's not about science. It's about sin. They don't want it to be a human being, even though it has all the marks of humanity. Think about the current issue of transgenderism. Science is very clear, isn't it? If you have XY chromosomes, you're a male. If you have XX chromosomes, you're a female. Pretty simple. But it's not a thing of science. It's a thing of sin. Right? (laughs) So what is the answer to the sin problem? Is it government? Is it education and universities? Is it the church and the church's message of the gospel? Yes. The answer to the culture war, friends, is the gospel of Jesus. How do we present the gospel of Jesus? Militaristically? Humble, seated on a donkey, peacefully, This is who we're called to be. Again, I am overly thankful for like-minded politicians who try to guard these things, but it's not the role of the church to do a cultural upheaval except through you telling your neighbor about Jesus. You telling that coworker who's having uh, gender identity issues, tell them about Jesus. Because it's not a science issue. It's a sin issue. And this is how Zechariah presents Jesus. That's how the gospel accounts present Jesus. Humble, riding on a donkey. Not a mighty war horse, not a a steed. The colt, the foal of a donkey. Friends, as we interact with unbelieving neighbors, we must reach them with the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control against such things there is no law. They may outlaw a lot of things we do, but they're not going to outlaw kindness. And that commends the gospel to unbelievers. A king like this is worth shouting about. A king like this is worth rejoicing. Notice how the prophet Enjoins the people, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. If you don't cry out, the rocks will cry out because he's worth it. In fact, Luke describes their shouts on that Palm Sunday like this. Look at Luke 19, verse 37 and following. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus did present himself as Israel's true king, but not the kind of king they were looking for. And this was a provocative point. Again, he rode in to town to their shouts because he was goading the religious leaders To enact their murderous plot according to his timetable this explains also why many people in the crowd though they celebrated him on sunday well they can be convinced to cry out crucify him on friday because he was not the kind of king they anticipated or expected him to be and that leads finally to the fourth thing i want to point out from this passage number four The perspectives on the king. The perspectives on the king. John concludes his account of Jesus' triumphal entry by showing different perspectives of this triumphal entry. John's good at doing this. He he helps us to get right in on the action. He records different participants' uh, responses so that we can feel like what it was like having been there because John was there. And there's three groups he highlights at the end of this section that give us their particular perspective. The first one is the disciples' confusion. He notes the disciples' confusion. We see that in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The disciples' confusion is quite remarkable they don't know what's happening why is this going on why is he entering this way why is he moving from a different method of operations from deflecting attention to now drawing attention why is he doing this but it wasn't until after Jesus uh, was resurrected and he explained to them from all the scriptures the thing concerning himself it wasn't until after Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit came to reside within them that the Spirit reminded them of everything Jesus had told them but this is the way it was to be Matthew records these words of Jesus in chapter 20, which is interesting because Jesus told them exactly what to expect. Jesus told them exactly what was going to happen in Jerusalem when they arrived, but apparently they forgot. Look at verse 18 of Matthew 20. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Here's what's gonna happen, guys. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. They were confused about the cross. They were confused about the triumphal entry on the donkey. And what this also tells us, friends, is that Jesus is in complete and total sovereign control of all the events of that week. He tells his disciples ahead of time, here's point by point what's going to happen When we get there, but despite Jesus' clear statements, they are initially confused. But we can be the same way, can't we? We can become distracted from the main thing. We can become distracted and we can put a lot of energy, we can put a lot of emotion, we can put a lot of effort on things and experiences and things happening in the world that at the end of the day will have zero influence on eternity. Can't we? We can can look at these things, and I would submit to you that much, perhaps most, of what gains the focus and the attention of the world, it will be shown to have very little significance in eternity. However, those things that are done in secret, those missionaries this morning who are in the remotest parts of the world, trying to reach the remotest tribes in the world, their humble, humble, peaceful proclamation of the gospel is going to ring out through eternity. The gospel things that are done in secret, they have eternal significance. These things that we get so bent out of shape about will have no real eternal significance. Since this is true, shouldn't our priority be on the things that are going to last? Shouldn't our priority be on simply serving the Lord, relying on his sovereign grace, trusting in the power of his spirit, Don't be confused like the disciples. He's got the whole world in his hands. At least the second perspective I want us to consider, not only the disciples' confusion, but the crowd's conclusion. They drew a conclusion about this. You can see in verse 17 and even verse 18, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. I mentioned earlier, I told you, get this in your mind's eye. There's a large crowd in the village of Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. They were witnesses. They saw Lazarus buried. They saw four days later, Lazarus resurrected from the dead. They believed. There's one large crowd. Much, much, much larger crowd, the million pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem, and they're hearing all these things about Jesus. The scuttlebutt is spreading throughout all the people, and they knew that a warrant had been placed on Jesus, but not only on Jesus. There was also a warrant for the arrest of Lazarus, they wanted to kill Lazarus too because on account of him, many were believing in Jesus. And so the obvious conclusion of the crowd was, if this Jesus has the power to resurrect a four-day dead cadaver, then he has the power to oust these hypocritical religious leaders. He has the power to overthrow these oppressors, the Roman government that's here with us. They saw in Jesus, listen, a power they felt they could harness for their own personal desires. does that ever happen today? People see in Jesus or in the church or in God, well, this is a power I can harness for my own personal desires. We've got a group of, fringe group of what I would call the prosperity gospel that hones in on that desire. Use the power of God for your own personal desires this is the perennial problem in our world. To receive the blessings that Christ might offer without embracing the true purpose of saving grace. And this prompts me to ask you, what do you see in Jesus? What do you see in Jesus? What good from him are you looking for? Do you see a power to help you in personal security, worldly success? Or do you hear his call to come humbly, obey a sacrificial life of service to your king? Also in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus gave the conditions on anyone who would come to him. And these conditions match Jesus. You see, Jesus did not come to wear a gold crown He came to wear a thorny crown. Jesus did not come to ascend some secular throne. He came to ascend a Roman cross. And he gives us this call. In Luke chapter 9, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, his soul? Friends, unless we are willing to meet Jesus on his terms, you'll never meet Jesus. Not in this life or the next. The third perspective John presents at the end of this passage is the Pharisees' collusion the Pharisees' collusion. They are colluding together, we see in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They said something's got to go. Something's got to give. Something's got to be done about Jesus. And as always, Jesus is the master of the situation. Do you see what prophetic words these colluding Pharisees were making unbeknownst to them? Look, the world has gone after him. Isn't that fantastic? They didn't know what they were saying from their lips. You see, Jesus came to force their hand. They're completely incensed by his overwhelming popularity, and they don't have a clue that what they're doing is actually accomplishing the Lord's purposes. And that concluding remark, the world has gone after them. How profoundly have these words come to be true? Friends, Jesus didn't just come to be the king of some puny nation in an obscure location in a back corner of the world. He came to be king of the universe. He came to be king of every tribe and tongue and people and language. Little did they know that they were speaking forth a fulfillment of Zechariah's very prophecy. In verse 9 and 10, he says, Behold, your king is coming. He shall speak peace to whom? The nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus came not to just be king of this small little nation of Israel. He came to be king of the earth. And I would remind you also that Zechariah not only predicted Jesus' humble entry into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. He even predicted what they would do to him once he got there. Notice what Zechariah says hundreds of years before Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 12, the Bible says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Hundreds of years before the Romans perfected the cruel execution through hanging on a cross, Zechariah predicted that the Messiah would die through piercing and that he would be scourged in the house of his friends, of the Jewish people. But not only that, Zechariah predicted his entry into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. He predicted the piercing of the Messiah when he comes as the servant king. He also predicted the second coming of Jesus. Notice what Zechariah writes in Zechariah 14.4 under the inspiration of the Spirit. On that day, the day when the king comes in triumph. His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies between, before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. Look at verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. This is Zechariah's prophecy. This is the prediction of Messiah as he would come, friends, at the end of the age. In his first triumphal entry, he came humble, mounted on the foal of a donkey, a sacrificial servant. But when Christ comes back at the end of the age, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, he will not come on a donkey, but what? A white horse, a war horse a mighty steed. He's coming as the king of the universe, the victor, leading a host of captives captive, and he is declared, as Zachariah says, king over all the earth. Be sure of this, friends. Jesus is not finished. The story is not over. When he returns in glory, all who have rejected him in this life will be judged with an eternity separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell then Jesus will look upon the whole world that he has saved and he will reign as king of the earth. The question for you today is this. Is he reigning as king of your life? Is he the ruler of your life? Is he the potentate of your life? Is he the king of your world? Friends, as those four testified today through baptism, Is he seated on the throne of your heart, directing your motives, your actions, the course of your daily life? Is he the king of your life? And that leads to my last thought. The king is coming again to rule and reign. Is he the sovereign over your life today?